you're the lone Republican presidential candidate who has yet to weigh in on whether or not you think the Confederate flag should be flying above the State House in South Carolina. Do you think it needs to go? I think it probably does, and I think they should put it in the museum, let it go, respect whatever it is that you have to respect because it was a point in time, and put it in a museum. But I would take it down, yes. Many of those people were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. So this week it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You're changing history. You're changing culture. People were there protesting the taking down of the monument of Robert E. Lee. Everybody knows that. We have a very, very important heritage and history. And whether things are good or bad, you learn from it. I agree, they were Confederate soldiers, generals, but they were done after the war in order to heal. This was a gesture of healing. When it comes to the Confederate flag, what is your stance personally on that in our society? My stance is very simple. It's freedom of speech. You do what you do. It's freedom of speech. Back in 2015, you said the Confederate battle flag belongs in a museum. Do you still believe that? All I say is freedom of speech. Would you be comfortable with your supporters displaying the Confederate battle flag at uh, well, political events? You know, it depends on what your definition is, but I am comfortable with freedom of speech. It's very simple. But you understand why the flag is a painful symbol for many people because it's a reminder of slavery. Well, people love it, and I don't view, I know people that like the Confederate flag, and they're not thinking about slavery. Is the Confederate flag offensive. It depends on who you're talking about, when you're talking about. When people proudly had their Confederate flags, they're not talking about racism. They love their flag. It represents the South. They like the South. People right now like the South. I say it's freedom of, of many things, but it's... Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Act Protect Engage podcast, Ape Academy. I'm your host, Chase H. We took a short vacation. We needed a break. We needed to regroup. We needed to get back on track, refresh. But we are here now. We are ready to go. We are ready to tackle the rest of this month. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. I hope everyone had an amazing weekend. All right, what did you just hear? That is a bunch of different sound bites from former President Donald Trump. The reporters were asking him what his stance was on the Confederate flag. Now, if everyone remembers, now I know a lot of people have a short memory, but there was a big issue surrounding Confederate monuments and the Confederate flag and what they represented in today's society. What do those powerful symbols mean? Do they still hold that same meaning today as they did back in 1860, 1861? through 1865 we're going to talk about the history of the confederate flag we're going to talk about it in detail <laughs> all right so bear with me i want i want everyone to kind of come out of this podcast series with a new perspective with with a new way of looking at the history of the south and the history of the confederacy in particular all right because these symbols that, that we're going to be talking about in the next few episodes. So we're going to have a two-part series. Today is the first part about the Confederate flag. So we're going to do two parts with that. And then we're going to start talking about Confederate monuments and statues. All right. So we're going to have a really, really good, interesting discussion about these topics. I'm going to be as, you know, objective as I can. 
I want to acknowledge everyone's opinions. Everyone's opinion is important. Okay. Um, and it means different things to different people. And I'll tell you some stories about it later. I was about to go on a rant. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Heritage or Hatred, The Bloody History of the Confederate Flag, Part 1, Rebels with a Cause. I hope you enjoyed this episode. God bless you guys. Ape. Thank you for joining me. We want to welcome all our listeners, both domestically and internationally. We love all you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I know everyone's busy. I know everyone has a lot going on. And I know that you're taking time out of your guys' busy schedules, your busy day, to tune in and listen to my monotone Charlie Brown voice. (laughs) I really, really thank you for giving me a chance, giving us a chance here at the Ape Academy. Quick housekeeping, we have tactical pouches, no, not tactical pouches, tactical patches, tactical patches that are going to be on sale soon. They just came in. They are amazing. If you want to learn more, please check out our IG page, at Ape Academy. All right, we have two IG pages, at Ape Academy and at Ape Academy podcast. Okay. That's our two platforms on Instagram. We also have a Twitter at a underscore defensive and Facebook Ape Defensive Solutions. All right. So piggybacking off of the Martin Luther King series that we talked about, right? Remember last week we talked about who is Jim Crow. We talked about Reconstruction and the Black Codes. All right, so Reconstruction was from 1865 to 1877 in the South following the Civil War, post-war. All right, and if you don't remember, just go back and check them out. Just do a quick uh, recap just to kind of catch up. It's interesting. I kind of went back in time with this podcast series, so we started actually a little bit before what we're going to be talking about today takes place. I mean, a little bit after, I'm sorry, a little bit after what we're talking about today takes place. All right, so the Reconstruction and the Black Codes and Jim Crow was much, much later. So the Confederate flag was developed and founded and adopted in the early 1860s. Reconstruction was in the mid-1860s, well into the late 1870s. Alrighty, so we're talking about heritage or hatred, the bloody history of the Confederate flag, part one, rebels with a cause. 
and we have a few great sources. First, an amazing book. I loved it. I love reading it. I'm almost through it now. The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem by Mr. John M. Kosick. HistoryNet.com, History.com, and the University of Virginia. All right. So we got some really good sources today. And we're going to be talking about the Confederate flag from the beginning, guys. It's going to be a little bit of detail, but it's going to be worth it because I've learned so much doing just this podcast in general. And I've been really, really crushing the research aspect lately. And it's been fascinating just learning about all this history. I had no idea about a lot of this stuff. And I truly believe that knowledge is power. And, you know, you know, when you go to the holidays, you go to, you know, Thanksgiving, you go to Easter, you go to Christmas, you know, at the dinner table when everyone's talking about stuff, they have no idea what they're talking about. If you listen to our podcast, you're going to have a leg up. You're going to have an advantage. All right. You're going to know a little bit what you're talking about. So when these hot button issues come up, when Uncle Frank wants to talk about the Confederate flag and how he loves the Confederate flag, you can talk about, well, actually, Uncle Frank, the first Confederate flag was, all right. So <laughs> you better show him who's boss. All right. You better show him how well read you are. Okay. So first things first, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the Confederacy. All right, so the Confederacy was founded for a bunch of different reasons, all right? And we're not going to talk about necessarily all the reasons why the Southern states decided to break away from the Union because we could really write about six books about that. Let's just say that slavery was the central issue, and whoever tells you it wasn't is a liar, flat out, okay? Slavery was the central issue, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that the North fought the South to free the slaves. No, 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 no. That's not what that means. What that means is that really the point of contention between the two sides was the issue of slavery, specifically the expansion of slavery into the free territories. All right? So, let's start there. Emblem of a separate an independent nation. All right, so I have a nice little outline. We're going to talk about it. We're going to hit some very, very important points, and this will help us frame the discussion a little bit. All right, and it also will help us kind of, kind of realize, you know, why is this symbol such an inflammatory subject? All right, even today. All right, so the leaders of the Confederate States that seceded from the Union in 1860, and then in 1861 believed that they were legitimately repossessing the sovereignty that their states had conditionally surrendered upon joining the Union. All right, let me read that again. So, the leaders of the Confederate States, when they succeeded from the Union in 1860 and 1861, they truly believed that what they were doing by seceding from the Union was taking back their rights, right? Because they feel like once their state joined the Union, whether, you know, way back in the 1700s during the Constitutional Convention, what they were doing was they were, they were joining in a voluntary conditional agreement by joining the Union. So it was conditional, right? Their membership in this 
entity known as the United States of America was strictly conditional, meaning if they felt like the government was violating their state's rights, well, shoot, we have the right to break away then. But that's not the actual truth. That's not what the Constitution says, right? So what they what they did was they thought they were simply repossessing the sovereignty of their states by breaking away from the union, right? They were just taking it back. They're just taking their freedom in their own hands, right? So when the Confederate States of America was formed in February of 1861, Southern statesmen made membership in their new nation, the Confederacy, conditional. They insisted that this be a central provision in the founding constitution of the Confederate States of America and in all founding building documents. Anything that that talked about, that laid the framework of the new Confederate nation, anything that built the traditions and the values, any documents that, that focused on that, they made sure that it was understood that the membership in the Confederacy was conditional. It was voluntary. All right. The Confederate politicians put emphasis on the sovereignty of their specific states. So it made perfect sense that the states of the new Confederacy would adopt seals. They would adopt flags, all these little symbols that expressed their new identities as sovereign entities. It was really, really important in the Confederate states at that time to establish their own individual identity as states. They, they were obsessed with it. Identity, that was like the central theme, one of the central themes of the Confederacy. Identifying identity and sovereignty. Who are we and what makes us who we are? What makes us independent? What makes us different than the Yankee states? What makes Georgia different than Illinois? What makes Mississippi different from New York? That was one of the central questions of this new Confederacy. The two most popular symbols in the emotionally charged early days of the Confederacy were the palmetto tree, a symbol of Confederate pioneer South Carolina, and the Bonnie Blue flag. Okay, so there are two symbols that everyone kind of loved in the early Confederacy. The palmetto tree, which was a famous symbol of South Carolina. South Carolina was like the rock star of the Confederacy. If, <laughs> that's kind of like the best analogy I can give. South Carolina is like the leader of the Confederacy, right? Everyone talks about Virginia. Everyone talks about, you know, other states, you know, Mississippi, but it was really South Carolina. They were the first state to get out of the union and they were the last one to join. They were really the like cornerstone of the Confederacy. They were the figurehead, right? They were the emotional leader. So whatever symbols that South Carolina put value on, all the other Confederate states also put value in, okay? So you got the palmetto tree and the bonnie blue flag. The bonnie blue flag was immortalized in Southern folklore by a song composed in 1861 by Mr. Harry McCarthy. 
The Bonnie Blue flag was really simple. It was a simple thing. It was a simple blue flag bearing a single white star. Just a plain blue flag with a white star. In 1861, several southern states incorporated the Bonnie Blue into their new state flags. Also, get this, even a few military units adopted the Bonnie Blue flag as their main battle flag. The Bonnie Blue was the most symbolic flag of, the, of Southern separatism and fighting spirit. So it was like, we are the South. This is our symbol. We are separate from the Union. Screw the Yankees. We can't wait to fight them. We can't wait to whip them. So that's what the flag represented. But it never really gained any traction, like widespread traction, as the symbol of the Confederacy. Like, even though it was a popular symbol of the time, it was never really hit, it never really hit that like national Confederate stage. Like it was never really like the star of the show. One of the first acts of the new Confederate Congress on February 9th, 1861, was to form a committee on the flag and the seal, which was headed by William Porcher Miles of South Carolina. He was a South Carolinian, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> He was a politician from South Carolina. The committee asked for ideas from the citizens and officials alike, and they received a ton of design suggestions. So just imagine like now it would be like if the government was like, all right, guys, all right, everyone, I want you guys to submit ideas for a new American flag. <laughs> any nut job, any, any, any Looney Tune out there can, can submit a uh, recommendation, can submit a design. Uh, they can, you know, oh, we want this, we want this, we want a, a two-headed lion, <laughs> you know, we want a, a shooting star, like, you can say anything, all right, so they, so the committee, um, the committee on the flag and seal, they kind of opened up the forum for suggestions for the, uh, citizens of the Confederacy. Most of the designs were labeled as elaborate, complicated, or just plain stupid, right, I mean, they kind of just blew off a lot of them. Many of the suggestions, they, they kind of pointed to the adoption of a flag that maintained many of the prominent features of the original Stars and Stripes. So ironically, even though the South was breaking away from the Union, most of the people who submitted their kind of designs and their suggestions, they felt like it shouldn't be that much different than the original Stars and Stripes. Like, they should still maintain you know, most of the traditional kind of elements of the Stars and Stripes, which is which was interesting, which kind of fascinated me that they would want to break away, but they still wanted to kind of hold on to that nostalgia. The committee was over, quote, overwhelmed with memorials not to abandon the old flag. One Confederate sympathizer urged Miles to, quote, let the Yankees keep their ridiculous tune of Yankee Doodle, but by all that is sacred, do not let them monopolize the stars and the stripes. So Southerners were like, yo, we're breaking away, but we'll be damned if we let the Yankees take everything from us. Like, they think they're the ish. They think they're the best. They think they're the best thing ever. And they do not deserve to hold everything that we hold dear, right? To grab onto everything that we hold dear and keep it for themselves, right? We want to still maintain some sort of American identity. 
And I find that really interesting. However, Mr. Miles, he rejected all these ideas. He told the committee that he had always regarded the Stars and Stripes as a flag of tyranny, right? That's just his personal beliefs. He was the head of the committee, and he told him, look, I don't think we should do this. I don't think we should be too close to the Stars and Stripes. I think we need to kind of break away and do our own thing. The design recommended by the committee and approved by the Provisional Congress became known as the Stars and Bars. Stars and Bars. So despite Mr. Miles' urging, his pleas, his belief that the Confederacy should make their own design, it fell on deaf ears. And <laughs> despite breaking away from the Union, right, get this, saying screw the Union, the South still designed a flag that looked exactly like the American flag. It was called the Stars and Bars, similar to the Stars and Stripes, right? The Stars and Bars. This design was ultimately denounced as too closely resembling the Stars and Stripes, but this is way down the road. So with the first two or three years, the Stars and the Bars was the official flag of the Confederacy. The new flag, the Stars and Bars, consisted of three horizontal stripes, alternating red and white, a patch of blue in the top left corner, right? So similar to the American flag, with a circle of white stars corresponding with the number of states in the Confederacy. So just imagine pretty much like a more simple version of the American flag with instead of a bunch of stars like lined up in rows, in neat rows, it was the states of the Confederacy represented by white stars in a circle. All right, so pretty much the same thing as the Stars and Stripes with less stars. Even though the first flag, which was the Stars and Bars, was later rejected and proved to be very unpopular with Southern politicians and very impractical on the battlefield, it was the source of widespread enthusiasm in the months immediately following back as F. But in the beginning, in those emotional, passionate days, those early days of the Confederacy, people were like, yeah, that's dope. Like, that joins fire. Like, because everyone was so excited that they had their own stuff, their own design, their own nation, that he was like, yes, 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 we love this. But it didn't last long. It only lasted a few years. Okay. The Stars and Bars and St. Andrew. Okay. Part two. As the new nation's first official flag, the Stars and Bars was celebrated in song and in poetry. Right? So people were making songs. They were rapping about it. They were making beats. <laughs> you know? Spitting freestyles about the Stars and Bars. Harry McCarthy, author of the, Boo, the Bonnie Blue Flag, he also published a song entitled Our Flag and Its Origins. And this song echoed the sentiments of the citizens who implored William Miles not to throw aside the old Union symbols. And this is a quote from his song, and I'm not going to sing it because my voice is terrible. Quote, but alas, for the flag of my youth, I have sighed and dropped my last tear, for the North has forgotten her truth and would tread on the right we hold dear. They envy the South, her bright stars, her glory, her honor, her fame. So we unfurled the stars and bars, and the Confederate flag is its name. That is actually kind of catchy. So that was 
an excerpt from a very popular song entitled Our Flag and Its Origins. And um, it just says like, hey, look, the North isn't going to take everything. They forgot who they were. They're jealous of the South. Right. Because we have freedom. We want our freedom. We stand for virtue. We stand for certain values and the North has no values. So, you know what we're doing? We're making our own flag. That's pretty much what the song says. Mr. Miles was very disappointed with the stars and bars because he had really hoped that the Confederacy would adopt his own personal design for a national flag. A pattern that later generations would ironically and mistakenly insist on calling the stars and bars. All right. So let, let, let me kind of flesh this out a little bit. So, okay. The first Confederate flag was called the stars and bars, and it looked exactly like the American flag, right? But remember, Miles is the chairman of the flag committee, pretty much. And he doesn't like that idea. He doesn't like the stars and bars because it looks too much like the freaking American flag. It looks too much like the stars and stripes. So he has his own design that he had been working on. And ironically, later down the line, people are referring to his design as the stars and bars. <laughs> his design would, uh, well, actually a little bit of a tweaked version of his design is what everyone kind of envisions as the Confederate flag with, you know, with the cross in the middle, with the horizontal cross or whatever. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right. All right. So, Mr. Miles, his design was inspired by one of the flags used at the South Carolina Secession Convention in December of 1860. This original design featured a blue St. George's, a.k.a. upright, upright cross on a red field. A St. George's cross on a red field. On the cross were 15 white stars representing the slaveholding states, and on the red field were two symbols of South Carolina, the palmetto tree, here we go again, and the crescent. Now listen to this. This blew my freaking mind. Okay, so so just remember, the Confederacy is broken off from the Union over the issue of slavery. The concept that the white race is superior to their fellow black people is at the core of Confederate philosophy and ideals. But listen to this. Charles Moses, a self-described, quote, Southerner of Jewish persuasion, that's how, he just, that's how he described himself, wrote to Mr. Miles and other members of the South Carolina delegation asking that the, quote, the symbol of a particular religion, end quote, not be made to be the symbol of the nation. So a Jew, a Southern Jew, told the committee to not put um, Christian imagery on the national flag of the Confederacy. Are you kidding me? After the <laughs> So they, they were fighting a war to keep slavery, pretty much, to expand slavery into the new territories. And a Jewish person is like, Listen, listen, guys. Slavery is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I just don't like the, the cross on the flag. I don't think it represents all the Jewish people in the South. <laughs> I don't know. I had to. I laughed when I read that. It was. You learn so much when you do research. I, I love doing these podcasts because 
there's always something new to learn. It's just so crazy. Like, it's, and it's ironic too. All right. So taking these suggestions into account, I can't believe he even listened to that. Miles removed the palmetto tree and the crescent and then substituted a diagonal cross for the St. George's cross. Okay. So a diagonal cross is not upright. So an upright cross is just the, the you know, the traditional cross. Okay. Standing straight up. But the diagonal cross is kind of like the cross on its side. Okay. Miles explained that a diagonal cross would be preferable because, quote, it avoided the religious objection about the cross because it did not stand out so conspicuously as if the cross had been placed upright thus. Miles tried to describe the diagonal cross design as heraldic, meaning more of a coat of arms, indicating medieval achievement, strength, and progress rather than a particular religious connotation. So, uh, Miles, what he was trying to do was avoid controversy, pretty much avoid offending kind of like the Jewish members of the Confederacy by saying, look, this isn't like a Christian symbol. This isn't saying that we're only a Christian nation. It's just saying like, hey, look, this cross represents like strength and honor and progress. It doesn't represent Christ, you know, and that's why it's diagonal, right? It's on its side. So it's not really meant to be a Christian symbol is meant to be more of a medieval, like, you know, kind of like a coat of arms. That's what a her heraldic means. It means like a coat of arms, like a medieval symbol. Okay. Despite his diplomatic intentions, later generations still identified the design as a as a cross. Even though he told everyone, look, this is not a cross. All right, this is a medieval symbol of strength. Nope, no, it's definitely a cross. So later generations still identified the design as a cross, specifically as a St. Andrew's cross, which was a cross that was a very common symbol in Western culture. The X-shaped cross derived its name from the first century Christian martyr who did not believe he was worthy enough to die on the same kind of cross as Jesus did. St. Andrew was crucified in 69 AD and his remains were taken to the Scottish coast in the 4th century. He would later become the patron saint of Scotland and his cross would be the symbol of Scotland. So it, do you guys know what the uh, Scottish flag looks like? It's basically a blue and white St. Andrew's cross. That's what it is. So although Miles, when he in his design of the flag, of the Confederate flag, he was trying to say, look, this isn't a cross. This is just a medieval coat of arms. It just happened to look like a cross, right? But no one believed him. Everyone thought it was basically St. Andrew's cross. And St. Andrew was a Christian saint, a martyr, as they called him back then, who didn't believe he was even worthy enough to be crucified on a cross similar to Jesus. So his cross was on its side which is why it's called the St. Andrew's Cross. Um, St. Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland. The St. Andrew's Cross was also incorporated into the British flag in 1606 when King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. All right, so I'm not going to describe the lineage thing in too much detail. Just know that the royal families are connected by blood and intermarriage. So you can be the king of Scotland and be in line for the throne of England. 
Make sense? Depending on who married who. Despite serving as the chairman of the committee, Miles was unable to convince his peers. His critics scoffed at the design, saying that the that the diagonal cross. <laughs> I'm sorry. His critics scoffed at the design, and they said that the diagonal cross looked like a pair of suspenders. Wow, that's kind of insulting, isn't it? Miles' design was eventually vindicated by the Confederate Army, so he got the last laugh. You know, f the haters. You know, they just salty that their designs weren't adopted. They just mad. Miles was just like, I don't care about the haters. I'm going to keep pushing forward. All right, guys, we're going to do a quick commercial break. That kind of flew by really, really fast. We'll be back in a flash. Ape. What's up, family? We are back. We are back from the quick musical interlude. Okay, we're flying through this outline, though, man. This is great stuff. I love doing these podcasts. I learned so much. I hope you guys are learning a lot, too. All right, so let's talk about the adoption of what we now know as the Confederate flag, okay? We're going to talk about that. With the outbreak of war between the U.S. and the Confederacy at Fort Sumner, South Carolina, in April of 1861... The Confederacy's survival now became wholly dependent on its armed forces. Of course, the Confederate Army and Navy symbols became very important to the new nation, right? So all the symbols, all the battle flags of the different units became very, very important. Symbolism was key. Approximately th three quarters of the South's white males between the ages of 17 and 45 served in the armed forces. Now, apart from adopting a new national standard, Confederate units demonstrated their patriotism by designing unique battle flags for different military units. So every military unit had their own symbol or their own battle flag. In the early years before the war in 1861, local volunteer and militia companies were formed to get ready for the war, right? Because war seemed inevitable. So people would get together and start forming their own little militia, right? If you had a little bit of money, you could be the benefactor. You could, you could start your own company and start drilling, start hiring some military trainers. You can make your own coat of arms, make your own flag. And, you know, you would, you would offer your services to the state. You know, you would offer your services to the army because everyone knew that war was kind of right on the horizon. These local militia units, they often received gifts and tokens of, of appreciation from their local community. Many units received silk flags, which were sewn by the ladies of their community. So the ladies in town would, you know, get together, give the boys, you know, treats, cook for them, um, give them gifts. And they also made flags for them. And they also made uniforms for them. These flags usually bore the state crest or seal and the company motto motto or symbol when the local units joined the war effort these flags would follow them into battle they would follow them into the army a few were carried throughout the war like a few lucky units they carried their standards 
from the beginning in 1861 all the way to the end in 1865, but most of them were packed up and mailed home early. And this was because when these local units joined their uh, Confederate armies, they were, they were uh, absorbed into regiments. So they were kind of re reorganized into regiments and Confederate regiments, you know, adhering to all common military traditions and practices, they carried an issued battle flag. So the army would issue you a battle flag for your regiment. Each regiment had a very specific battle flag. So even though, you know, your boy from your, you, you get together with all your friends, you're from Salisbury, North Carolina, and all you guys grew up in high school together and you joined a little, and you guys formed a little militia. Maybe there's 50 of you guys. You guys are like, all right, we're marching off to join the Army of the Potomac and you march off to join General Lee, even though you guys might have your own little flag that represented your company, once you got absorbed into the big army, you would have to send that, that flag back home to Sally and adopt whatever the army made your flag to be. <laughs> Make sense? Regimental flags. So these were called regimental flags. Regimental flags marked the positions of forces on the battlefield and helped officers identify and maneuver their troops in the confusion and chaos of battle. The regimental flags also served as sources of pride and morale. On the battlefield and long after, these flags helped promote esprit de corps, right? So just morale, just unity, right? Everyone gets together for a beer and they talk about, you know, you know, old war stories with the flag in the background, right? With the flag hanging up in the clubhouse. Many of the regiments that entered the armies of the Confederacy in the spring of 1861 carried the original stars and bars as their main battle flag. So remember the stars and bars? The stars and bars were the Confederate flag that looked exactly like the stars and stripes. And a lot of these units, these early units in the Confederate army, the Army of the Potomac in particular, they all carried the stars and bars. With the outbreak of war and President Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers to crush the, quote, rebellion, Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina, they had to make a choice, right? Once Fort Sumner happened, uh, happened occurred, right? And Lincoln was like, yo, we need people to crush these scrubs. North Carolina and the upper southern states, they had to make a choice. They had to pick a side. They couldn't remain on the sideline, so they chose to join the Confederacy. And what this did was it shifted the the battle lines northward or northward. So before the battle lines were in South Carolina, right? Because it was really only a few states that seceded from the Union. But once Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, once they seceded, then all of a sudden it pushed the, the uh, battle lines northward, okay? In the early engagements, there was mass confusion on both sides. This was really because of inexperience combined with complex battlefield tactics and maneuvering. This made for a very chaotic and confusing scene for soldiers and commanders. Adding to this confusion was the similarity in uniforms and battle flags. So everyone looked exactly alike out there. No one knew who the heck they were shooting at, where they were going. They were just marching around in circles. It was, it was ridiculous. At the Battle of Man... <laughs> It's just everyone just walking around, just marching in circles, just looking at each other, just shooting. They don't know what they're even shooting at, man. At least one Confederate regiment fired on another Confederate regiment because it was unable to distinguish between battle flags. 
At the Battle of Manassas, General Pierre Beauregard, a Louisiana native and commander of the Army of the Potomac, recalled that late in the afternoon, when victory was already within our grasp, he spotted an unidentified force approaching his left flank. Fearing that his force, that this force might be federal reinforcements, he stared at the flag through his field glasses, but was unable to tell which side it represented. Lucky for the general, it was the forces of Brigadier General Jubel Early's 7th Louisiana Infantry, flying the original Confederate Stars and Bars. A disaster was avoided this time. So, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, he was like, yo, we almost killed each other because I'm looking through my field glasses, through the smoke, through the artillery, through the muzzle flashes, and I'm trying to figure out who this force coming on my left flank is. I can't tell if it's the, the Yankees, and I can't tell it's my guys. Luckily, it was the um, friendly troops from the Louisiana Infantry, but we didn't know what it was at first. After the battle, the general resolved to have a separate battle flag, which would be completely different from any state or government flag. For help, he turned to his good friend, Mr. William Miles, who is the chairman of the Confederate Flag Committee, and also was his former aide during the summer of 1861. Back in Richmond for the summer, Miles described his rejected design to the general, who was very intrigued. Once again, Miles pleaded to his, to, this, to his committee to change the national flag to something less associated with the Stars and Stripes. This is like the, um, the 10,000th time he begged them to change it. Once again, Miles' proposal was voted down by a 4-1 to one vote. It wasn't to be. So, your regard, General Beauregard, he, he didn't like the national Stars and Bars flag because it it was too closely resembled the Union flag. And in the battlefield, in the chaos of battle, it was impossible to tell friend from foe. That was pretty much the main issue. That is pretty much what caused what we now know as the Confederate flag to be created. All right? The formal adoption. Despite the rejection of the flag design by his committee, by the committee, Beauregard proposed a change to his military chain of command and to his commander, General Johnston. And this was going to be separate from the national flag. So he was like, okay, if the Confederate Congress, if the Confederate Committee doesn't want to change the flag, then what maybe what we can do is create a battle flag just for the military. Since they don't want to change the national flag, at least make it so that the army has their own flag so we don't get confused. The high command of the Army of Virginia met at Fairfax Courthouse in September of 1861 to adopt a new battle flag. The blue cross with white or gold stars emblazoned on a red field was the clear choice as battle flag of the Confederate Army of Virginia. So that is what we know today. That is the red flag with the blue cross and with the white stars that everyone recognizes now. That flag design won the competition so just like before except for it wasn't open to civilians the army of virginia the, the chain of command they said look guys i want everyone in the ranks i want all the officers i want all the enlisted to get their flag designs together and present them and we're going to pick the best design so they all met at fairfax courthouse 
They sat down and they were not leaving until they came out with a new flag. All designs considered up to that point had been rectangular or in the language of the day, oblong. Johnston suggested that the battle flag be perfectly square, better proportioned, and that it vary in size based on what branch of service it was being used in. So the cavalry would have a slightly different flag, the artillery would have a little bit of tweaks here and there, and the infantry would have their own, their own flag, but all based on the same general design. The resulting carry flag was the original prototypes for the Army of Virginia, and it, they, these flags have gained mystical status in Confederate lore. The Cary flags were designed by Hetty and Jenny Cary, women of Alabama, Alabama natives living in Richmond, Virginia, and it was done under the direction of Captain Colin M. Self. On November 28, 1861, the Army of the Potomac, later renamed the Army of Virginia, formally adopted the new battle flag. Okay. So let me, let me recap real quick. So this is what happened. General Beauregard was like, look, this ain't working, okay? We almost shot our own troops. We need to get a new flag. He, he asked his chain of command, the head of the Army of the uh, Potomac at the time was General Johnston, later um, taken over by General Lee, General Robert E. Lee. He said, we need a new flag. Mr. Miles, right, William Miles, who was the, the chair of the flag committee, his design was still was still on ice. He never threw away his design. He always believed in his little heart that his design would be ultimately picked. So that's exactly what happened. His design was ultimately picked. All right. So I'm going to read a quote from General Beauregard's speech to his army as they adopted this new flag or commonly called the carry flag. All right. Quote. This is the general order that the officers read to the troops of the Army of Northern Virginia. Quote, A new banner is entrusted today as a battle flag to the safekeeping of the Army of the Potomac. Soldiers, your mothers, your wives, and your sisters have made it, consecrated by their hands. It must lead you to substantial victory and the complete triumph of our cause. It could never be surrendered, save to your unspeakable dishonor and with its consequences fraught with immeasurable evil under its untarnished folds, beat back the invader and find nationality, everlasting immunity from atrocious despotism and honor and renown for yourselves or death. That is powerful. That's dramatic. Basically, he was saying, yo, this is your new flag. You better not give it up. You better not let it get captured. You better die protecting that flag, right? So this is the new Confederate battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. And this, will, this occurred on November 28, 1861. The Army of the Potomac, which changed its name to the Army of Northern Virginia, it was taken over by General Robert E. Lee, would adopt this as their flag. His stunning victories as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia in 1862 to 1863 led to a complete overhaul of the Confederate national flag. The stars and bars 
was the old flag and it was put to the side. A new flag that was based on the Army of Virginia's carry flag was adopted. On May 1st, 1863, the Confederacy threw away the stars and bars and adopted a flag known now or known then and known now as the Stainless Banner. The Stainless Banner featured the carry flag in the top left corner. So just, just think about you know the red flag with the blue cross in the middle with the white stars. That was in the corner of the Stainless Banner and it was on a white field. So the flag was white with pretty much the Confederate flag in the top left corner. That was the new flag. That was called the Stainless Banner. And that was in 1863. That was adopted as the new symbol of the Confederacy, the national flag of the Confederacy. The Army of Virginia, they still use the carry flag. Make sense? I don't want to be too confusing, but <laughs> this is the early stages, all right? This is the early stages of the Confederate flag. This podcast, I really want to just outline where it came from. Thank you for joining me, guys. I don't want to make it too long. I know my voice tends to drown on and on. I really hope you enjoyed the episode today. Remember, if you have a moment, please turn on your post notifications so that you know when a new podcast is coming out. Also, give us a follow. If you have a few minutes, can you please write a review? Make it five, uh, five stars, all right? You know, we'll take five, we'll take four and a half, but nothing lower than that, all right? Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned. We're doing another episode. What's today? On Thursday, all right? So today is what? Tuesday? We're doing another episode on Thursday. God bless y'all. Stay safe. Ape.